Hello and welcome to another episode of CBL Speaks. I'm your host, Donna Sheely. Today we are joined with Terry Zamora. She's the Vice Chancellor of Fiscal Affairs at San Jacinto College. Welcome, Terry, and thanks for being with us today. I'm glad to be here. First of all, tell us how long have you been at uh, San Jacinto? Actually, this month is my anniversary of four years here at the college. All right. Well, tell us your journey that led you to uh, the college at San Jacinto. Coming out of college, my first 20 years of work were not in higher ed. I spent uh, a number of years in public utility industry. I spent a number of years um, helping run a family retail business. And then I spent quite a length of time in the maquiladora industry, which is working in manufacturing in Mexico. So all three seem very diverse, but I learned lessons from all of them now that still serve me today. And so I'm thankful for that first 20 years of my career. The last 20 years I've been in higher ed and I started at a technical college down in Harlingen, Texas on the border with Mexico. And I worked for them for about 10 years. And I worked also at South Texas College in McAllen, which was my first foray into community college work. And since then have also worked at Houston Community College and now um, San Jacinto College, all in the um, head of the fiscal area over um, finance, purchasing facilities and things like that. The job description varies from college to college, but similar roles. Well, I know community colleges have a varied demographic. And as a CBO, how do you connect with the population you're trying to serve there at community colleges? So in the community colleges, community college where I am now, we have three distinct large campuses and three varied um, communities. And so we try to be sensitive to each community, what its needs are, what, what the needs of the students are in that area and tailor um, our programs slightly differently between campuses and just really listening is the main key to to that. You said that you were in um, the higher ed for 20 years, but you also were doing other things before that for 20 years. So you said that a lot of the things that you learned prior to coming to higher ed, you were able to transfer. What are some of those skills that you were able to, you know, use that you found that were beneficial as you transferred into higher ed? So working in the public utility industry, I was working for electric company right out of college, right at the time the state of Texas was forming their public utility commission and you know governing overall utilities. So I learned at a really early, um, early in my career about government regulation, basically state regulation, which um, was foreign to me at the moment. Um, it was a new developing part of state regulation, but I've had a lot of reflections back on those early years um, when I moved into higher education. It, I think it made the the change from non-governmental work to governmental work be not quite as um, difficult because I had some concept of, um, you know, the extra set of rules that come out of the state. Um, Working in a family business, it has its own challenges, but I think the biggest takeaway there for me is when you're in a smaller environment, you have to worry about everything. And so I know when I was first in higher ed, um, had some personnel issues, had some people file unemployment when they shouldn't have, and was over at a charge kind of telling them, you know, they did this and that and they should have. And they're like, how do you know all that? I said, because when you work in your family business and it's your money, you pay attention to every dollar. So you learn some lessons in a hard way that maybe you wouldn't learn so much when it's not your money. And, and you learn to pay attention to details or or clues um, that maybe might escape you if you're not as watchful. So 
I think the there were some hard lessons learned in a family business, um, mostly about you know survival and making payroll. That yeah. um, if you've worked in government work for a long time, um, you don't really worry about the ability to make payroll necessarily. Um, it's a given that the money will be there. And then in the maquiladora industry, oh my gosh, I crossed the border every day and worked in Mexico um, every day for about seven years and. It is a whole nother world of regulation, but not necessarily governmental. Um, huge presence of um, unions, um, but not the type of unions we have in the U.S. A whole different layer of politics and needing to know people, um, working outside the mail system. You could have your utilities cut off when you hadn't even received the bill yet, you know, just a whole web of things we never even worry about over here backwards in many ways, but very progressive in many ways. I worked there before I'd ever heard of a debit card in the U S but yet all of our workers um, who lived in huts with no electricity had debit cards because there was a federal law that we had to pay them in cash. And that sufficed for paying them in cash, which is much easier than having to fill that cash. So Why? It, it was a real interesting time learning about, an area that was in some ways backwards and some ways many years forward. So all those are lessons that somewhere along the way you use later. Yes. Yes, indeed. Wow. Wow. That must have been something traveling, you know, crossing the border every day and doing that and seeing just a whole different lifestyle. So I know that really probably helped you out a lot as you transferred over. Now, we may have a lot of um, up and coming CBOs and, you know, some are interested in community college. What are some of the most significant and essential topics about which incoming community college CBOs should be aware of? Really, the most important thing and is always keep the students center mm. as the goal and their success as the goal. Um, sometimes we get wrapped up in what's good for employees, what's good for our departments. Um, but no, we're here to serve our communities and our students. And we serve our communities by treating our students well and making them be productive citizens of our community. And so just it seems like finance role or fiscal plant role, police, safety, the kind of things I'm over, aren't that student connected, but remove us and see how everything fares, right? And, and that brings back the presence of mine. And um, if nothing else, just always keeping the student at the forefront is probably yeah. the biggest thing I could tell somebody because everything else falls behind that. Oh my goodness, that's so good. And, you know, not, a lot of people feel, um, you know, when you're talking about finance, that that's all you're thinking about all the time. But I know you guys have so, you wear so many hats and there's so many things that you have to do. And also that it's also ever evolving. You know, it's not just finance. You guys are managers, advisors, change leaders, and so forth. Which aspect of your job outside of the core functions, and you kind of touched on it with students, but there may be something else that you feel hold the most importance. I have to say in at San Jacinto College is the first time that I've had responsibilities for safety, health, and emergency management. And so the last two years have taught me a lot about those functions and how important they are, not only to keep us safe, but to keep us moving forward at all oftentimes carried out by people very far down the chain of command. And so bringing time and attention to their importance and to their basically um, our total dependence on them for keeping the college moving forward. 
many of our courses or technical courses were t- teaching a lot of hands-on training. So while we did go remote with some things, in May of 2020, we were already back um, with our technical hands-on courses, which was much quicker than many other um, colleges and universities were. And figuring out how to do that safely and um, putting process around it and ever-changing process, I have to add. Um, just the importance of those roles um, has been really impactful to me. It's an area I had never supervised before. It's also an area I don't think we'd ever relied on so heavily before as a as an industry. Right, right. I mean, who knew? But yeah, I mean, I, that's very, especially right now with what's going on. So it's very, very important. Well, let's talk about your role as a manager and a leader. Um, what skills do you feel you use most to develop your team of people? And, um, you know, how many people are on your team and how do you um, mentor and work with your team? So I have 10 direct reports. They're very diverse. As I mentioned, there's safety and there's emergency management, there's police, there's a fiscal plant, there's construction. And then the typical things you would expect of finance, um, internal audit. I also have grants um, and also have procurement um, and auxiliary services. So it's pretty broad. And. I really do enjoy um, bringing them all together, but um, not putting a hypothetical question or problem on the table, but putting a operational thing on the table that one or two departments are trying to implement. And here in all 10, people have input. Um, Sometimes we think this project only involves persons A and B, and it really should involve all the way through letter S, right? And, and it's always, I relearn that lesson every time we, we do that. Um, for, I mean, we may be changing the pay deadline, you know, for students or something that doesn't seem to involve others, but I quickly learn how much it does. And then when you broaden that to let's shut down a building for a semester and change out the air conditioning system, um, you learn just how many people you impact and um, so-and-so will never leave her office and, you know, those kinds of things. So just a detailed knowledge that everyone has from their different points of view is, is always good. I enjoy that. I also look at it as a real uh, growing exercise because the truth is, you know, when, once you leave the director of accounting position and move upward, you are now always dealing in things in which you have very little expertise. And so, you know, the higher you go in the organization, the more you're responsible for things you have no core knowledge of. And I've had to learn the hard lesson of um, it's super important to get people that you trust and trust them. You cannot do their job. It won't be good for the college if you do their job for them or doubt them in every way. But if you're coming from a position of trust and you've coached them that it's okay to tell you the bad news, the trust has to be tell me the good and the bad. And it can't just be tell me when you've done something great. They have to be comfortable doing that. And that's where I feel comfortable leading in areas where I don't have expertise is when I know I can rely on the person to be truthful with me. Nobody's perfect, but I wouldn't be perfect if I was sitting in their role either and neither would anyone else. So I think that's the biggest takeaway about moving up in the organization. And it's hard. I mean, it's hard, particularly if you come into a new college. You can't just turn over all the people that are there if you don't think you trust them. So you have to work with them, create their right environment, realize perhaps they're the way they are because of your predecessor or their predecessor. Um, You have to give people a chance to become what you want them to be. 
um, and help create the environment for that. That's good. I like that. Give them a chance and time to become what you want them to be. And speaking of that, let's talk about time management a little bit. Now, there's so many, again, the hats that you wear. Talk to me about your time management and how you manage all of the things that you have to do. Um, every day, you know, I have my list and I'm old, so it's still a handwritten list, although it's probably on my calendar somewhere. And every day I, I leave happy if I crossed off at least two of my eight items on my list because I've done 13 other things. To some extent, it's very hard to control a day. To other extent, there's things I can't control, such as unless, you know, my chancellor or a board member calls me, I don't accept appointment before nine o'clock. I come okay. in early. I come in by seven. And so I know 90% of the days I've got a built in two hour buffer to get through anything that's uh, you know, absolutely has to be finished that day. And I try to pick out what that thing or those things are and get them done in those two hours because as the day progresses, one never knows. And that may be the only two hours of really solid work that I had, right? So that's been, once I figured that out, that's been a real, um, a big, big plus for me. I don't stay up at night working on something when I'm tired. I realize that my brain is better in the morning. I can do three times as much in those two hours than I could struggle through all night at home. So um, I guess that's probably my biggest secret, if if you want to say that. I also um, have heard different spins on the s'more concept, small moments of reflection, and try and build in five, 10 minutes between appointments so that I can actually make notes of what do I need to follow up from from that conversation I just had. Because sometimes you just zoom through the day, literally and figuratively on Zoom. And um, you, at the end of the day, you don't remember or had failed to even note what you needed to do or tell somebody or send as a result of those conversations. And being too busy is 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 not good. So yeah. um, trying to build in time to act on the things that you just talked about. Yeah, that's great. No, that's really good. Those are some great secrets. Thanks for sharing those. <laughs> that's really good. It was easier in the days when I had to drive between locations, right? Because you could think. Right. But now that right. we Zoom, it's, it's, it's actually tougher. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you have, I like that. Those small, what did you call that? S'more? The small, small moments, moments of, of reflection. Of reflection. Mm-hmm. That's very good. That's that's good for anyone. I think that's really good. So um, let's talk about what you're currently passionate about. I know there's some things, I know you kind of expressed, um, you know, the students, which um, getting to know them, but what are you currently passionate about or you're just starting to explore and you're, you know, you've been doing this for a while and I know things are ever changing for you still. You're just probably just constantly learning things. So talk to us about that. I don't know about other areas of the country, but in Texas, you know, the idea of having a promise program was very popular, which really um, the way community colleges are geographically um, sorted out in Texas is you're giving you're given so many school districts to serve. And so our geographic area has six large school districts that we serve. Okay. And um, the idea is to be able to fund every single every single senior that graduates in our geographic district to give them basically free tuition to get all the way through an associate's degree. Wow. Um, There's some commitments that they have to make for that. Um, They have to take a minimum of 12 hours each fall and spring. They have to pass. They have to fill out a FAFSA um, each year. They have to sign a pledge by a certain date um, in the spring of their senior year of high school. 
And we had been testing that out at three area high schools. We have, I think, 13 total high schools. And um, and then this past May, we received an unexpected $30 million donation from Mackenzie Scott and her husband, Dan Jewett. And so we dedicated that um, donation to rolling out this promise program to all of our high schools, meaning every area senior that lives in our district could receive a free um, associate's degree or up to three years of schooling if they choose. That's awesome. And so that will be rolled out next fall. And so I had, I don't, um, I'm not over the foundation. I don't have any organizational ties, but they've been leaning on me heavily from a finance perspective to help study that, to work with the planners, with the investment company to plan out how should we invest? You know, what can we afford to do? And that's just been a really interesting um, project and one that I've had to really, I had never gone into the nonprofit side. And so I've really had to learn, read 10 webinars and, and things like that. And it's pretty energizing to think we could offer that to every every graduating senior yes. from area high school. So that's been a fun and passion for several of us within the college since we got that donation last May. So. Yeah. Oh, wow. How exciting. That is really, really awesome. So that's great. Speaking of, you know, you're talking about the webinars and um, resources. What are some of the things that you'd recommend uh, our listeners to check out in terms of resources? So about... I want to say 12, 12 or 14 years ago, I became aware of a um, author named John Miller and his books, um, the QBQ is his uh, QBQ.com is his website. And QBQ stands for question behind the question and his whole theme, everything he does, every presentation, every book, every writing, he has a blog, he has weekly you know, emails Everything he does is about personal accountability. And it's all about not being a whiner, not being a complainer, not being a when are they going to give me this or that. It's about being accountable for ourselves, wherever we are in the organization and asking for what we need, doing what we can um, to self. You know, if, if you don't feel like someone gave you the training you needed, we'll ask for it. Seek it out on the Internet. Do what you can to get yourself ready. And so it's not about floating in an island like a no man, you know, in no man's land, but it's about um, always looking at first at what can I do um, to improve my situation and or to equip myself. And it's just very breathtaking. He um, started as a motivational speaker for corporations and I've seen him speak several times in higher ed groups, but now um, I think he also has written a, a book for raising children because that's about personal accountability too. It's like, why can't I have dessert? Did you make your bed? You know, right, I, right. I don't know exactly like that, but you know, it's about being accountable for your role in the organization and being accountable to represent the college well to students um, out in the community when you're wearing our t-shirt in the checkout line at the grocery store. That's right. Um, and it's a powerful message. And I never cease to be tired of reading his new things, hearing him speak, or um, just reading his weekly blogs of examples where people said, oh, my gosh, they must have read your book because I went in an XY restaurant and this is what the server did, you know, and how people rise to accountability. And you can see that they'll be uh, they'll have a great career somewhere. You know, even if they're a 16 year old person sweeping the floor, you can see the way they do it or the way they interact 
there's something there where the person is taking accountability for whatever level in the organization they're at. So real powerful. Uh, I never tire of him because he's non-accounting. He's totally outside my world, (laughs) but I still love to receive his messages. Yes, that is awesome. John Miller, you said his name is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. John Miller. All right. Well, that sounds like something I want to pick up myself. So that's really (laughs) good. That's really good. All right. Well, talk to us quickly about your future. I mean, you've been doing this for a while. How how much longer are you going to be in the game? (laughs) (laughs) What is your vision? Actually, talk to my chancellor about that the other day. Oh, wow. I'll be be a couple more years or so. Okay. But what I really want to keep doing is there's there's one thing I came in, I told the chancellor and the board four years ago that I wanted to do. And I think we've made progress. We still need to make more. And that's in line with financial resiliency. I've worked at several colleges. We're all good at designing really good things and then finding the money to implement them. None of us, nowhere have I worked, have we been really good at letting go of things that we didn't need to do anymore. And so there's a real key to that. But if you, you know, get everyone on the same page that we want to continue, we want to serve our our community and our students well into the future. And we all know the future is very uncertain um, when it comes to state funding, even federal funding. We work off property taxes in Texas um, in my particularly particular geographic area. We sit right on the Houston Ship Channel with all the oil companies. Who knows, you know, what's going to be the value of their properties in 10 years just because of the the shift away from total reliance on oil and gas. So everything is kind of a shifting sand as far as a revenue stream. And so um, I really want to set the college up to be resilient for many decades into the future. And to do that, we've got to carve out and see what things that we do today or yesterday that are nonsensical don't add value don't point towards student success. So we've really been on a two-pronged idea from looking for how can we increase revenues, but more importantly, how can we let go of the things that we don't need to be doing? So that's the financial resiliency piece. And then the other piece is more personal is if I sit at, we call it the strategic leadership team, but it's cabinet in most colleges. Um, how can I be a regular contributing mem- member and not just the finance person? Um, um, how can I listen to what they're trying to accomplish and help them find ways to do so when there doesn't necessarily seem to be a way? I love that you said a lot of times people don't want they don't want to let go of things that they you know long, no longer have use for. Why do you think because I hear that a lot. Why do you think people tend to hold on to those things and you know over years after year after year when they know maybe they don't even realize that they need to let it go, but why do you see that happens? Well, I mean, I'll give you an example and it's sometimes we don't even realize it, right? So right. when I first came in, I went through orientation and right away I noticed that my benefits, no, I just moved 20 miles from one from one community college to another, we have the same benefit programs, they're state run, but I was paying half for them here that I was paying at my previous job. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting. So when I dug into it, this our college here was voluntarily paying, the state pays a fourth, the college is supposed to pay a fourth, and the place is supposed to be a half on health benefits. Well, in our case, the state was paying their fourth, the employee was only being charged a fourth, and the college was voluntarily picking up half of what the employee was supposed to pay so the college was paying half. Well, that sounds real nice. Yeah. Um, 
but we weren't even marketing it, selling it as an advantage that had been put in place so many years ago that no current people even realized it necessarily. And it you can't take things away from people though once they're hard. So um, the reality was when we looked at it, it cost our college an extra three and a half million dollars a year. Mm. And okay, we've already gotten in the budget, but let's look at that constrained revenues 10 and 20 years out. What's it going to cost us then? And so we um, worked it and put a plan in place to stop it at a certain date for all new hires, right? Right. So anyone transferring from another college, university, another ISD, another school district, they're not even going to notice because they're going to keep paying what they were paying at the other one. Um, People coming in from the outside world were bowled over by the quality of our benefits. So they're happy. So nobody really is unhappy with it. But it was kind of like just laying there in plain sight and no one realized it. So a lot of times... It's that kind of thing. Not that anyone's holding on to it, but just didn't recognize the opportunity to let it go. Right. Right. Wow. Well, that's great. Well, thank you so much for sharing with us today. Is there anything else that you might want to touch upon that we didn't get a chance to discuss? There was one point when you perhaps ask about challenges. What was my hardest lesson coming in? Mm -hmm. I was used to working in areas where I just get the job done. It wasn't so collegial. And so... In, in, in the different industries I had worked at. And so learning to just sit there and listen was a huge learning point. Mm-hmm. Um, in other industries, it's looked at as get busy, right? Stop sitting there. But learning to listen, really listen to those around you from different avenues was a big lesson, but probably the most valuable thing I could learn. So Yeah. That's great. That is so great. Well, thank you so much for sharing with us today. We really appreciate your time and everything you've shared. You can find out more about Terry Zamora in today's episode by visiting podcasts at nakubo.org under professional development. Then click online education. Make sure you subscribe to CBO Speaks on Apple Podcasts so that you can get the latest episodes instantly. And on behalf of Terry and myself, I want to thank you for joining us for this episode of CBO Speaks. I'm Donna Sheely. Be well. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Susan Wheeler Johnston, President and CEO of the National Association of College and University Business Officers. You can find resources for today's episode, as well as a wide variety of research and tools at nakubo.org. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Mm-hmm.